0: You're listening to the Endless Pursuit Podcast.
1: Where we talk about all things hunting and the great outdoors.
0: Let's get into it. No, I prefer it. it's go time. Three, two, one. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Zeiss. Hunters
1: need good glass, and with the Zeiss SFL or smart focus lightweight binoculars, you'll
0: be on the hill longer and seeing further. The lens diameter has been reduced by two mil making it possible to decrease their overall weight by up to 20% compared to the Zeiss Victory SF models.
1: Not only that, the SFL binoculars are up to 30% lighter than comparable products from competitors.
0: Find your local Zeiss SFL stockist at www.osaaustralia.com.au. Okay,
1: so you've heard part one of Africa with Dodge over there. This is part two we're going to find out about some of the things he didn't get to chat about while he was there and we're going to hear what led up to the trip and get right into it so dodge how did it all go
0: well, uh, it was a i mean I've been before so I had a bit of an idea of what I was getting into but it was a pretty epic adventure uh, I probably used that term a little bit too much but it's sort of there's not many words that encapsulate the whole experience it's um it's one of those things that unless you've been, it's hard to explain. It's hard to understand. And I feel that a lot of the anti-side of the hunting in Africa especially comes from, well, I know that it does, comes from people who haven't been and experienced it. Uh, so, you know, I uh, I hope that covering this in a little bit in the last episodes and a little bit more tonight sort of enlightens, just broadens some perspective for people. And I mean, we already had one comment when the first Africa episode came out. One guy uh, commented straight away and said, not an episode for me. Good luck. Thank you. And uh, that, that came out, I'm assuming before he even listened to it. Um, So I sort of, I don't know. I want people to have a listen and, and then, then give their opinion because uh, you know, hunting's not for everyone. I understand that. And putting value on animals over there is the only way they're going to stay alive. The same way we fight for our right to keep deer as a hunting species over here and and not be removed as well as other species and just being able to hunt itself. So without hunters over there, there would be no animals. And I saw one today that said something along the lines of the anti-hunting people will actually kill more animals than hunters if they get their way. So it's an interesting concept that killing animals actually saves them, so we might uh, – I'll try and break that down a bit later. But before Africa, um, we had a really big lead-up to it, you and I both, but uh, we had Deer Expo. My African trip got bought forward, which meant I couldn't fully commit to Deer Expo, unfortunately, so we had a uh, a shortened adventure down there, which started with a 11-hour drive down from Sydney because Bo and I – both misread the directions and both thought it took seven hours for some reason and it wasn't until we got about half an hour out my driveway when we typed it in the map that we realized it was a nine plus hour trip and then it was dinner as well and fuel and all that sort of stuff so we ended up getting in there at i think we rocked in at eight thirty at night and uh, we nearly knocked some samba on the way we had a I can't even tell you where we were, not because I'm hiding it, I just can't remember. It was a back road that Dave took accidentally uh, because his GPS is an iPhone. Sorry to all the iPhone users out there, but your GPSs suck. It took us a little bit of a route that made us all seasick on the longest windy road you've ever come across. It went for about 150 kilometers. But uh, halfway down, we did see a a decent stag that anyone would have shot, mid-20s, and he was with a little hind and a yearling down in a little creek uh, she was standing, the hind was standing right on the side of the road, and then the, the stag and yearling were down the bottom. That was pretty fun, and we dropped a waypoint, and as soon as we saw it, we was like, righto, get on the hunt app and let's see if we can hunt this area and and drop some markers. It, um, it, it was a hunting zone, so it's definitely been dropped, and it's a middle of nowhere, though, so it's not somewhere I'd go on purpose, but if I ever got lost and ended up in that direction, that's where I'd be. But... Uh, one thing that did happen at the Deer Expo I was not thirsty at all because I had about seven listeners turn up and provide Cancer V to, to do it. Uh obviously well, might not be obvious, but Matt, obviously you weren't there. You might talk about that here in a minute, but as you know, a lot of people were turning up to come and say hello to us both and, and whatnot. There was a uh the guys from Lithgow Arms came to see you specifically, Matt, and, and have a chat and wanted to um Talk about long-range shooting, which is definitely your cup of tea, not mine. My long-range has started about 100 and ended at 120. I don't know anything past that. Uh, who else came and said hello? The guys from InfraRay came and said hello and called in. Um, we had some good chats with OSA and uh, had a look at some of their new products and the Hardys rifles they had there, again, in the long-range category. So it was uh, yeah, good to chat to a few listeners. Uh, we were next to the Australian Hunters Club and they were throwing darts in their booth at a Samba, I think it was, and old Gut Shot Gary, I called him, but Chris uh, he had one shot at it when I was there and shot him right in the guts, but then nailed it on the second one, so it was redemption. It was good to see everyone. It was extremely tiring. It was a massive – it ended up being 21 or two hours of driving for 20 hours down there. So it was um, – yeah, it really took us out of took it out of us. And the reason it got shortened, like I said, was the African trip got brought forward uh, by a few days, which was a logistical nightmare, but we made it happen. And it meant that I we traveled home on Saturday evening after dinner, after the show, to a long night of driving, split up between the, the three of us, we had Dave, Truman, and Bo in the car. And we just sort of split it on, you know, three hours driving, three hours spotting, three hours sleeping, keeping the driver awake, so... It worked pretty well until the end when we were all pretty dozy and that was tough. And I think I got home at five AM or six AM or so and uh quick hour and a half or two of sleep and then straight off to church for me for that day. It wasn't uh, it wasn't my brightest of days. A few of those cans of E were consumed and then that was Mother's Day too, so happy Mother's Day to all those mothers out there but um that got a little bit more sport than my wife did that day because I was pretty wrecked although I was physically there I was probably not personally there and then jumped on a plane the next morning so but um I know you had some frustrations Matt, in getting there and you were missed it was uh, unfortunate because it is like I said the only event that we have of that caliber in the country at the moment without the shot shows so
1: <sighs> yeah look it was it was nasty to say the least I mean I definitely spoke about how the dates were pretty crappy, um, having it on Mother's Day, and you know I,
0: I spoke to the uh exhibitors, what are they called, the organizers about that, and they said, this is how much of a foresight it was. They got to the point where they put the ads on Facebook, and the first comment was, "Guys, that's Mother's Day," and they all just face palmed themselves and like, how did no one get that? Well, I don't know, they mustn't have kids.
1: Well, that and just not ideal. So that that hurt, and um, you know, my wife is very tolerant in in the time that I'm away from the family doing this mainly. And um, I just went, is it fair to miss her first Mother's Day with the whole family? So I decided, hey, no, nah, that's not uh, not going to be on. So I decided I'd fly down for the Saturday. Now, that is a bit of a mission in itself, but I was going to do a fly in, fly out. And so up at uh, 2.30 and on the way into the city, spent a heap of money in uh, basically, oh, jeez, the tickets obviously was money, the rental car was money, the um, airport parking is ridiculously expensive. So the airport parking alone I think cost me about $50 off the top of my head and that was only for a, like a 12-hour period because I was flying out first thing in the morning and flying back that night. So
0: Where, where do you park? Which one do you use? Uh,
1: P2, P4, I don't know, the one right across it. So it's, it wasn't the closest and it wasn't the most expensive. I think it was the budget option but 50 bucks for one day is pretty – It's rough.
0: You can nearly park in the centre of Sydney for that. And,
1: and Uber across, yeah. Look, that was sure. I was thinking about that, but um, I just went, no, look, I'll, uh, I just didn't want the stuff around, to be honest. I was going to drive and then train it. Uh, glad I didn't because the trains actually were not running because what the line that I used was down or they were doing track work. So thank God I'd actually booked, and you've got to pre-book parking now too. So then, um, yeah, so 2.30 start, started driving in, got there, and literally got into the car park, parked, got my bag out, got everything out, and I get a text message, your flight has been cancelled. And this was while I was driving, but obviously it didn't. I didn't get it on my watch. My watch vibrates, but it only does that between the hours of 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. So you can sleep. And because I was driving there, did not get it. So basically what had happened is they cancelled the flight, said it was for maintenance. I feel it was probably because they didn't get enough numbers and they could shift them on to other things and save some money. And the interesting thing is someone told me the other day, this year alone, 1,700 flights had been cancelled by that provider. Now, normally not a big deal because if you're flying and you're going away for a few days, what's a couple of hours? You're still getting to the destination. The problem was is my flight was the first one out at 6 a.m. And uh, they basically had nothing until after 11.20 or 11.30. Now, doing the maths on that, flying into Melbourne was an hour and a half. It's
0: then- sort of unusual too. They generally run on the hour or so to Melbourne. They'd all been taken. Oh, so it wasn't that they weren't running. It was that there was no seats. No, they were gone.
1: There was no uh. sense, so that was the, that was the the next available was that time, and that was frustrating because I just sat there and went, oh, whatever. They gave me a couple of options, which were pretty poor, uh, which included other airlines, and I had to pay the difference. they'd reimburse for my flight, but they were they didn't really have much, and it was far more expensive, so I just went, no, that's not on. yeah, so I did the math, and that worked out to be by the time I flew in. Then there were, I think it was an hour and 20 or an hour and 40-minute drive from the airport, uh, roughly, don't quote me, it was one of those. And then by the time I thought, well, then going and getting the car and checking that out, et cetera, et cetera, I literally worked it out that I'd probably get to Deere Expo between 2.30 and 3 and it shuts at 4 and I just went, this is – I was fuming to say the least and then just went, well, I'm not coming down for an hour and – then what happens? I'm on the last. I think I was on one of the last flights out, and with the same provider. And I just sat there and went, "If I go down for an hour and a half, and they cancel it for Mother's Day, and this whole thing's just been an expensive waste of money." No, I'm not. I'm just. It's just not worth it. And then uh, what made it very frustrating is they wouldn't credit the flight back. So I was able to get a refund for the one flight. I was not able to get money back for the parking. I'd paid a certain amount for the car, which I lost, and then I lost the flight coming home. So it was quite an expensive non-event. You know, Very frustrating. I sit there and go, man, the dear gods hate me. I can't even get to Deer Expo. So that was a real frustrating, annoying day for me. And um, I don't think I'd drive. Uh, Maybe I would, but I definitely wouldn't do it in one day.
0: No, no, and I don't recommend it to anyone. I think my first text... Back because you texted pretty early in the morning when it was happening, and I was awake because it was freezing cold and I was sleeping in my swag. It wasn't particularly warm, but uh, yeah, you know, your text said flight cancelled, not coming or something, or what? No, you didn't say that. you just said flight cancelled, and I I think I just wrote back straight away, don't drive. Like it was so much further to do that by yourself is would just be dangerously dumb, but and also waste of you yeah, got yeah, there yeah, and getting time. There it would have been, an been hour
1: and the, half getting, probably the same
0: time, yeah. yeah so no it-
1: yeah very very annoying so that was a pretty ordinary part but um yeah that's hopefully they put on a better date next yeah, year
0: that and also venue i mean the venue itself was fine but i don't know i've always had an issue with the events that have them in venues that are out of the way a little bit like they'll have them what they might refer to as a hunting area however You know, SHOT Show proved it year after year that having them in Sydney Metro, Melbourne Metro, Brisbane CBD, like it it worked and it made it so easy for people like yourself that would whip down to Melbourne and, you know, you'd be 10 minutes or 15 minutes in a cab and you're there. It's not hiring a car and the extra expense. The exhibitors don't have to lug their stuff down and then freight it an hour and a half across or, you know, freighting to... Regional areas is is not cheap, so it's got to be taken on board. Surely,
1: I, I think also like j- just the date. The date was the killer, and I, I spoke to a lot of people that didn't go down at all, and the reason they didn't go down at all was the date. And the the reason I was flying in and flying out was the date. And I sort of went, "Geez, that's annoying," because it would have been really easy to fly down on the Friday, and then if it, if a yeah flight gets cancelled, wait for the next one. It's no big deal. You're not missing anything. It's it's done, but. um but then that and then the accommodation and where it was, there was the, I think the accommodation I originally looked at staying on the Friday nights because I was going to fly down the Friday but sort of got to the point where it was well and truly away. I wasn't gaining much at all for doing it. And it's just like I'm, I'm probably actually going to pay more here because now I've got to book the car for an extra day and then pay for accommodation and I'm not that close. So, yeah, there was just a, a multitude of sort of events and issues with the the whole thing and where it was. And hopefully, yeah, will they either – city I, – I do like the city for that. I get that maybe they wanted the hunting feel, but, jeez, uh, I'd rather be close to the city and easy to access.
0: That's sure. Yeah, and I've seen that proven with the numbers that come through. I mean, uh, you know, this is not dissing Deer Expo because hats off to them for still running in their damn Expo when, when no one else is. And I think the numbers were good down there. I'd like to see them in comparison to other years. But I also think they were good on the back of there hadn't been other expos for some time and that's the only one. Whereas I think if it was held the following weekend or the weekend before, they would have been bumper again because it would have been so much easier for, you know, guys like yourself. There there was some wives there that I spoke to one lady. I said, oh, you know, you're having a good day. And she goes, well, he told me he was taking me away for Mother's Day weekend. He didn't tell me it was to a hunting expo. So there was a few uh, women that got dragged along. few people in trouble. A few women that got dragged along for that. But, uh, yeah, it, you know, I think the city's the way to go. That's always my vote. And if there is the odd chance that you might draw someone in that might be fringe hunting or might be just thinking about it, dipping their toes in it, much easier to get them to a city event than to drag them an hour and a half out of Melbourne to, you know, an event that they might possibly not like. So... But uh, yeah, I just think venue is definitely important, but also dates, guys. A Father's Day weekend might be different.
1: Yeah, I'd probably still want to spend it with my kids, but um, you know, not lug them around. For those parents of young kids out there, you probably don't want to lug them around a convention centre. But hey, some might. It's not me,
0: (laughs) not the convention centre part, but uh, yeah, no, just the yeah. It's uh, anyway. We'll see what happens. You know, there's talk of more events happening up in New South Wales next year, so we'll um. Yeah, fingers crossed on that one and, and hope it does finally come through.
1: Alright, let's get into it. Let's uh so you didn't have much sleep and you had an early flight out on the uh I think the Monday, you said. So not long at all. What uh how long how long is the flight over
0: there? Uh, a couple of options. The direct flight from Sydney was fourteen, and that was Qantas. Then you can also go via uh for us it goes through Singapore and then back down, and that's I can't remember which leg is which, but one is seven and one is 11 hours, so a little bit longer with a bit of a stopover, but you save a bit of money. You always save money on stopovers because they want you to spend money in the stopover country. But uh, I actually, I think I mentioned it before, but my tickets were incredibly cheap. Uh, it was a mixture of good timing on sale, and I used a few points but not many from my Qantas points. Uh, so I actually it was 388 bucks return, which was – like, that, oh, that's probably what you paid for Melbourne both ways nearly.
1: Huh, I think I paid more. Yeah, which is... No, yes, I did. I definitely paid more and I was with a budget.
0: Anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, it's—it uh, it just happened luckily. It doesn't happen like that. One thing I would say to people, if you ever book an African trip, and I'll try not to sell one, is on school holidays because there's a lot of expats in Australia that uh, bring their kids back to South Africa or... You know, come over to Australia or vice versa on holidays. In it's a, it's just a very busy route in school holidays. In
1: their school holidays or ours?
0: Ours. So there's a lot of boarding schools over here have South African children in them that then go home for school holidays. But what it means, it's not so much the busyness, but what it means is that Qantas don't allow you to use points during that, like they don't do their Qantas rewards flights. Yeah. Which is what I booked. So it. it you know, it just because it's a peak period, basically it's like traveling anywhere on the long weekend, like we've just had. It's um, yeah, it's not fun on a Monday afternoon. But so keep that in mind. But uh, yeah, flew over. I had a very interesting lady next to me on the flight over who was a vegan and very anti-hunting, which made for an interesting fourteen-hour flight. But uh, landed over there, and man, customs on that end was easier than going through a train station over here. I mean, it was literally grab your bag, see you later. There was no benches to go past. Sorry, I'll retract that. Before I got my bags, they'd look at your passport. The lady never said a word. She looked at it, flicked through a page, found a page, stamped it, and that was it. That's all I saw, grabbed my bag and walked out. I mean, I don't know what anyone's smuggling into South Africa, but I could have taken anything in. There was nothing checked. So I walked through the other side and there was some massive storms that day and traffic was a bit of an issue. So our business partner over there, Dempsey, was caught in traffic. So I just sat down and waited. And I waited at a little bench that was actually a police bench, like where, where a policeman would sit in the terminal just doing paperwork, I suppose, but there was no one there. So I just sat at the chair and it looked pretty abandoned. So I thought, well, I'll just have a little look in the drawers here. And in the drawers... There was like a shooting magazine and some ammo that was just in the drawer in the airport. Like, imagine having that in Sydney Airport—just was just a hundred eight rounds. Obviously, something they'd confiscated. Yeah, definitely not here, and just left in there. But uh, no, it was pretty cool. It's—it's it's a like it's not a pretty airport by any means. This is Johannesburg, but it's a cool experience. You're sitting there and just watching new people. I enjoy. know, yeah, it sounds creepy sometimes, but watching people and sitting in airports is just such a flow of activity and, you know, I often look and say, oh, you know, you think to yourself, what are they doing here? Are they on a hunting holiday or that guy's got a Stony Creek hat on? Maybe he's here for a hunting, you know, and you're sort of analyzing that. But – and then you see the hunters come through. It's not hard. They're wearing khaki and and then toting gun bags by that time or gun boxes. Did you take your uh, gun? No. No, it's not uh, – it's not hard. It's just not necessary also. And I definitely – not encourage, but remind people that if you do travel internationally, there's a genuine chance that you can use a gun on the other end. It, it sometimes costs you 50 bucks a day gun hire or something. It's usually included in your package at a very minimal fee. But, uh, you know, we've got good guns and good optics over there. It wasn't worth it. New Zealand's the same. We've got, you know, decent rifle setups like we had with Hilly there on the – the um I just said the name of the gun before and now I can't remember it. The Hardy Rifles. Uh, so, you know, it's quite often they're better than some of the client's guns. The only reason I would say to a client to bring your gun is they've got some nostalgic connection to it. Maybe their dad went to Africa or their pop with that gun or or whatnot. But uh, my friend Yannick just bought a double rifle and a 9.3 by 74R or something. And that was specifically for an African trip coming up for a Buffalo trip. So it's uh, there's that reason as well. But no, I didn't. And that was also probably why I breezed through customs. There wasn't that to deal with. But uh, no, I got over there and Grace had actually given me a couple of little uh, reminders and presents to to take over there. She gave me a little plastic figurine of a few African animals from her little animal box here at home. So I set those up on my uh, my bedside table on the first night and she gave me a book. It's called... A uh, little giraffe's big idea, and it's about a giraffe called Gregory, who goes over to the African Savannah, and it's just one of her favourite books, and she reads that all the time. So oh yeah, I had a little read of that on the plane, and um, it was you know talking about missing kids and stuff. That's probably my longest I've been away from Grace, and definitely Ryder. You know, he's only a year and a bit, so it. Um, and then it was on the back of Deer Expo, so it was. Although I ducked home on Sunday, I wasn't there. Mentally, for a while. So that was, um yeah, it was going to be a tough, tough week away. So she gave me some little mementos, and one of her little rabbit dolls. But that sort of got me through the first night because I was wrecked. Oh, the the time zone. It was what did I? I left at I left at nine o'clock in the morning, and I got there at four o'clock in the afternoon. But that was after a fourteen or fifteen hour journey. So the jet lag. Absolutely kicked my butt that night and then the next day especially. So, Dempsey picked me up and started driving and started talking and I was just dozing off mid-conversation because that was midnight our time and getting later. So, that was pretty hard. But uh, we totaled a porcupine on the way in, which I'm surprised we didn't pop any tires. Those things have got – they're like the size of a wombat, but then with another wombat size around them in quills. And it was – a. It was unfortunate. We were obviously a very dark road, straight, and this thing just like our kangaroos do, I suppose, just popped down on the side of you. But we had a, a tracker with us that we picked up on the way, Big John. And I said to Dems when he said that, is that one of those nicknames where he's actually tiny and everyone calls him Big John? And he said, no, that is a description. And it was absolute description of Big John, man, he's He's a big dude, but um, it's just a gentle giant. Anyway, we we knocked the porcupine and it was cut in half by the tire. It was a proper roadkill. And uh, Dempsey said, "Uh, will you eat it, John? And he said, usually, but this one's a bit flat. (laughs) So that uh, bushmeat for them is, you know, hard to come by and highly sought after nothing. Roadkill is, you know, just like going to the shop but for free for them. So it's not very often that roadkill survives gets picked up pretty quick and and schnavelled up but uh so the first night we went into camp and met everyone and and you know you get met with a doesn't matter what time of night it is we rocked in at 10:30 and the staff were there waiting with a white cloth over their arm and a fruit juice cocktail type thing and uh you know a warm refreshing towel to wipe your face just that sort of five star level of of care and and the staff over there amazing and what they do for for very little you sort of forget sometimes that it is a third world country and the, you know the it, it's a little bit awkward for Australians to deal with sometimes being waited on like that it's the equivalent of being in a restaurant and having a waiter but 24/7 like it's nearly rude for you to go and get something yourself it's, it's they bring it to you they bring you food your drinks they clear your plates It's sort of i hopped up once and took some plates into the kitchen and i got met with an awkward look of what are you doing in here? This is our area. So that was—it's uh, just different for Australians to deal with. We don't—we don't deal with the tipping culture and the service industry over here. Just gets paid for doing their hourly rate. Rate they don't—they don't get rewarded for doing a better or a bad job. And that's something that uh, you know people that have travelled internationally. You've done it in America. You know, it's—it's just—it just becomes natural when you're there. But it's very hard for initially. Australians to get used to. The um, the first night we met Paul, uh, it's the first time I'd met him in person. we would spoken a lot online and things, and he's just a great, genuine dude. Very quiet-spoken, uh, very accomplished person in career and life, and yeah, he was a very enjoyable person to have around camp. But there wasn't much talking done that night. He'd already bagged himself a blue wildebeest earlier that day. He's got in a bit earlier than me, so... We uh we crashed and I went to bed pretty early, but a bit of a gentlemanly start over there, Matt. Um, might have been a a good idea for Truman to head over there because that didn't kick off till sort of seven seven thirty. Any you know, sleep in,
1: happy days. It would have would
0: have been, would have enjoyed the sleep in. I definitely did. And uh, I had no idea what we we're doing that day, but that's uh, that was the Rhino Day. It turned out Dempsey came and said, told me at breakfast that the vet's turning up and this is what we're doing and that obviously played out in episode 1 and I won't uh, I won't you know talk about that one too much more but that was just an incredible experience to to see something so big so close but also to be a part of something special for them as the property owners and farmers that you know they invested such a huge amount of money in one animal and then to find out that it's pregnant, so they basically got two for one. They bought it as a female, not knowing whether it would be or not. It was a flip of a coin, pregnant, because it came from a property that had males running on it. And with a sixteen months gestation period, and they reckon you don't even see the baby; they just kind of always look pregnant. It's it, um, you know, it, it's just a surprise either way. But to find out it was, and then to see the looks on their faces, and they were sort of high fiving each other. So it's pretty special how much do you think it would cost to insure a rhino for a year and so you know we all do car insurance and things like that and then you think a rhino you're like wow but we're insuring against it's um natural death uh poaching accidental death and injury that means they can't breed again or something like that just throw a random figure it's less than you think i'll just say that
1: let's take a break and we'll be right back
0: Everyone knows hunters need good glass, and with the Zeiss SFLs, or Smart Focus Lightweight binoculars, your hunting time will be enhanced with this great bit of kit.
1: Optimized to be as lightweight and compact as possible, the Zeiss SFL binoculars are a great addition to the SF family. The new ultra-high definition concept ensures true-to-life color reproduction and the highest level of detail.
0: Thanks to its Smart Focus concept, the focus wheel is perfectly positioned, enabling fast and precise focusing, even with gloves on.
1: Find your local Zeiss stockist at www.osaustralia.com.au. And we're back. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I don't know much about Africa. It's funny, ours dropped on uh, Monday. It was a week after the meat eater guys had a really good right. African episode.
0: What a cracking episode. Yeah,
1: it was really good. I thoroughly enjoyed that and um, it slightly changed my thoughts. Oh, I'm going to put my, head out and, my hand up and say Africa is not probably something that I've even been interested in um, or considered. And um, that was a, a really interesting episode. Um, and it was funny because I sort of reflected on, I know there's been conversations I think you and I have had about what is the best conservation model. And it was interesting to hear them say the, the, the American, North American model was better um, on the back of the fact that it wouldn't work what they do in Africa because they get paid so little and, um, Obviously, they've created a fantastic conservation model on the back of uh, what their economy is. So it's still a win. And it was, yeah, it was interesting to compare them when they were talking about it. And I love the fact it was an Aussie on on their talking as well. So, um, yeah, that was super interesting. But, man, I would be saying, um, because obviously wages are quite low, money-wise, I think I... I think I saw something. I can't remember what the are, like a shooting a rhino is worth. I think it was something like 80 Australian or something along those lines. So I'd be guessing a year, I'd be sort of saying around the three grand mark.
0: Close, but still cheaper again. So on the rhino stuff, to hunt one, to hunt a rhino bull, This is. I've just got my website open in front of us. It's about 34,000 US for a rhino bull to hunt. So, what's that? 55, 60, nearly 60. No, nah, it'd be 50 Australian, which is a hell of a lot of money.
1: Uh, yeah, it's, what is it? Isn't I think, it Isn't 60, it sixty-one three six one at the moment or something like that. So. Yeah,
0: not good. Anyway, a lot of money. Uh, you can shoot a cow or on a cow, which st- they look very similar and actually have just as large a horns. Uh, for 22,000 or you can have a dehorned rhino for 28,000 so a bull that's been dehorned and that's for anti-poaching stuff they cut them off so there's no need to be poached but uh, the insurance on one is $800 a year it's pretty light on isn't it uh, uh, and he's he's well it, it pushes them to buy more because yes the investment's high but the risk is lower because the insurance is there yeah. To back to back them up, Which is a good thing for the animal and the species. It, exactly, all round. So, and that's done by an insurance agency that purely insures game animals. Something we don't even have here as an item. I thought I wouldn't believe, but I'm sure someone would insure it. But you can insure anything these days. But yeah, no, that was incredibly cheap and not something I'd ever thought about. And if I did, I definitely wouldn't have guessed. I would have been like what you said, three to five or, or whatnot, based on the the price of the rhino but all, the, all their animals are insured and i don't know it's just an interesting situation in africa where they own the animals we don't own our animals here you know no one owns kangaroos no one owns deer in a free range situation i should clarify but over there there's you know the two options you've got the privately owned stuff or the proper free range like the boys from was it tanzania they're in yeah the meat eater guys. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm,
1: so. They're they one that you could only lease the land and then correct. the animals on it were sort yeah. of yours, but they're not like you don't own you, them. You
0: though. all have got the right to manage them, yes. but you're still leasing the Yeah, which is uh, – there is an option there in South Africa as well. We've got one large property that that happens on. But the people we lease the land of still – only issues a certain amount of tags, so it's not quite like they had. They had sort of free reign on management numbers, but uh, we're sort of limited, and mostly with buffalo. With the small plains game, it's sort of open slather and left up to the management to uh, to control. But uh, anyway, so the the rhino hunt was done and dusted, and that was a that was a big day emotionally because you know, obviously, something I'd wanted to do. I wouldn't say my whole hunting career but definitely in the latter few years i mean the dangerous game in africa and the big five is a a big draw card for anyone who has been to africa it's not the first thing you hunt the first time you usually go over there and shoot some planes game and some interesting things but uh, anyway day two we were Debs took us to a different property it was an hour and a half away it was near a town called all days which i think is an interesting town a double l and then second word days d-a-y-s uh, I'm assuming it's just a an African name that's been translated into English, and then it's just a weird, weird way to describe a town being all days. But we spent all days out there, and we were looking for one black giraffe in about eleven and a half, twelve thousand acres, and we could not find one black giraffe. We had two vehicles going and eight people and two drones.
1: When you're saying one black giraffe, is there more there, or was there like literally just yeah. one animal? Or no, good good were-
0: question. So I learnt this over there. I, I thought prior to going, I thought black giraffes were uh, like the equivalent of a rutting buck. So you know they would do a color phase type thing during the rut, or at a certain period in life, they would do a color phase into a darker skin. Uh, I was actually incorrect in that thought. It is. A genetic line that does exist, Uh, it's not dominant, so a recessive gene, and not all mature um, giraffe will go black, and not all mature giraffes with the black gene will go black. And when I say black, it just means the patches go from orange to black. They've still got the white sort of lines in between, the grout in between the tiles, so to speak. So it's only... Uh, I, I they did tell me the percentage. Let's just say one in fifty males that mature will go black. So it it is you know a quite I wouldn't say rare, but it's on the rarer end of the spectrum, which makes them more sought after by hunters, I suppose. I I uh Dempsey said you know there's one available, and I said yeah, okay, let's go and have a look. And I'd seen giraffe before, and they're interesting and pretty cool. But never really thought about shooting one until they said there's a black one that's pretty uncommon. I'm like, oh, that's more up my alley. And so on this property, there was three two years ago, and over the two years, they've again hard to find, but they've ended up they're shooting two, and now there's some young ones coming up that have the gene but haven't turned black yet. So there's only one left on the property that they've seen, and it, I mean they they know this because. This property has a, a massive lodge, and they actually run helicopter tours and things out of there, so it's not uncommon for them to see it from the air. But on foot, and you think that a giraffe is easy to see because they're huge, but the the brush there was so tall. I've I've got a photo or a little video, and I'll if you're, if I remind myself, I'll put it up. But you have to zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, and all you can see is a giraffe's face in the tree. And you can't see any of it, the rest of its body. So we actually ended up finding twenty-two giraffes that day, a mixture of males, females, young ones, and not one of them had any black colour on them, which was uh, good and bad. Um, I mean, it's not uh, they're not a cheap animal to hunt, so I wasn't super disappointed that I didn't get to shoot one because it freed me up to uh, you know possibly shoot some other things. But one thing that did happen. Oh, sorry. The the name of the trees. I just remember it's called a mapani tree. And there's, there's the boys that were there were talking about these mapani worms, and I'm picturing like a, a beetle grub type thing. And they say at the right time of year, the trees just rain down with these mapani worms. They sort of come out of the ground, go up there, eat the leaves, and then drop a silk web type thing, and and come down and they turn into a moth or something. Now they eat them, and I thought, oh, okay. Whatever, and that was sort of all that was said about it. But on the way home that day, we actually went to a spa. It's called like a IGA version, and they bought a bag of them and they took them home and cooked them. And they were the most disgusting thing I've ever tasted. The the I mean, I haven't had you know the witchetty grubs or whatnot that we eat over here, but this was like eating a you know a cicada shell that's left on the tree. Oh yeah, yeah. That, but with brains inside it, like goop, gooey. Have
1: you ever like fried up or deep fried like prawn heads?
0: Yeah. So yes, I have. Uh, That's probably a close texture. The one thing I struggled with this was it had a uh, like a segmented body, and every time you bit it, the segments would sort of come open, and then. Um, clip your tongue a little bit and you get like a little, it would nearly bite your tongue. Like a, the bits of shell on the back of a prawn oh, like, like would open up. Like a you sort of thing. Exactly. Like a, like a go on the prawn topic. Yeah, the back of a prawn with the segments on the shell and it would pinch your tongue and it was not an enjoyable experience. So if anyone ever goes and they say, you should try it, no. Just say no. Dodge said no. And uh, it was a bit spicy too, which also didn't help. But I'll go back. No, uh, it put that in the back of my head and try to forget I ever ate it. Uh, anyway, so on the spent all day chasing these drafts around, and we looked uh there were some high stands that we climbed up in that weren't being used, some water tanks uh there was another tree there uh, a boabab, which is those big huge wide base trees uh that generally got monkeys in them over there but the they were fruiting at the time, which is an interesting seed covered in a uh, not meringue, like a nougar. Textured powdery coating and then you sort of just suck on it and it would sort of dissolve like a mm, lifesaver, musk lifesaver kind of chalky texture but it was a real dried apple flavor. Anyway, we were chewing those around and we just stopped and grabbed a few and then jumped back on the ute or the bucky and we crested over the top of this little rise on a track and 100 metres away at the bottom of the track was a broken pipe and And drinking from the broken pipe was a little herd of Impala or Impaleli. I think they pronounce it. And there was a big Impala ram. And in previous time I was over there, I saw them and I was like, yeah, cool, but not super cool. Anyway, when you see a big one, it changes your mind very quickly. And Dempsey said to me, which he said a few times on this trip, if you don't shoot that, I will. And... I just answered his question by loading the gun and there was nothing romantic about it. I leaned over the top of the cab of the ute and shot this thing and it went 15 meters and curled up in the thick stuff and died pretty damn quickly. But uh, I was using a a Mossberg 308 with a suppressor on the front uh, and some interesting rounds that were, they were solid, solid copper or solid. Yeah, they were copper, brass, one or the other. And I sort of, it just went straight through, zipped straight through him, which I was cautious of because there was already a water pipe under his feet. I didn't want to put another hole in it and it it zipped through. So, you know, later on I sort of questioned him on that bullet choice and he said, well, it's very hard with the range of species they've got to pick a bullet that performs on everything. So to have a solid that's, you know, going to zip through the smaller animals, but they've got good trackers unless you get two blood holes and on the larger animals, it's got that big impact power. So that was—I mean, they're not using it on buffalo and things, but on a kudu or eland or some—you know that's larger antelope. So, anyway, that was uh, that was my first animal that I technically killed over there. The rhino was obviously still alive, and oh man, it was a beautiful animal. And I just has such a short hair. It was probably only five or six millimeters long. It's super short. Real pretty and a very good specimen. And we saw a lot the rest of the trip. And there was none that I would have shot that were better than that one. So it was a – I we I spoke about it briefly on the last episode. Don't don't go to Africa with a set goal. Go with an open mind because every now and then you come across something like that that you just can't pass up. So that was a, that was a full big day, an hour and a half each way. On the way home, we actually stopped at another property – to have a look for some bush pig. Have you seen those? They're like, they're not even, you know, warthog is what most people picture, like pumba. But these things are just ugly mother truckers. And uh, everyone jump on Google and have a squeeze, but you know, bush pigs in Africa are some of the ugliest animals I've seen, but impressive nocturnal, and they come to bait roughly at the same time, which you can sort of schedule them a little bit. And uh, these guys have been working on that for a while, trying to get them on bait. And they were coming, but we ended up doing two or three nights out there, three nights it was, and we missed them one night by 20 minutes. Like we packed up at 10 o'clock and they came later. or One night we, you know, they didn't come in. And then the following night we also missed them. So no shot opportunity, but that was a long day. Got home at, yeah, 10.30 or so to the staff waiting for us with dinner again, which was nice. So. Another night there, and the next day we travelled to a new farm. We actually went across six different farms over the whole time we were there, ranging in size from sort of three thousand acres to, I think that was the largest that one. Where we were chasing the, where we were chasing the bush pigs was a larger again, but it was more of a free range cropping property than a than a hunting property. Just had the pigs on there as well. Lots of game on there, but they weren't huntable. The farmer only lets us shoot the pigs, but. Uh, We flicked the night vision around one night there and you could just see you know, 30 or 40 kudu out on his crop eating his – and that's something we would see here with kangaroos or pigs and they're seeing it with these massive game animals. It's a little bit change of scenery. But uh, next day, it was a new farm and particularly well-known for a few species this place, but uh, Blesbok was what Dempsey was trying to show me and it wasn't hard to find and we had Every time we'd put a stalk in on one, one that was in our peripherals would blow it for us because we were just so well camouflaged and hidden. It was surprising to see how well an animal with a massive white blaze on its face can hide in, in greenery. But uh, we end up on the edge of a clearing, stalked through on our bellies and there was a group out there and there was one mature ram, they were rutting at this time, very similar to the way our fallow rut, I suppose, but uh, one ram herding all the girls up, and the girls were on to us. They knew we were there. Something else, another one to our left had given us away, and they all actually run off, and he's like, nah, I don't really care what you're running off for. I'm going to stand my ground on my little ant mound here, and his little, essentially a a fallow scrape. He had a little bed there with a, a scrape and where they'd pee in it, and... He kind of stood there and then he bedded down, but he bedded down facing us. And the second he touched the ground, he saw us because he came a bit lower than the branches we were under. And he just stared, was staring straight at us for I don't know, it seemed like 10 minutes, but it was probably 30 seconds. And then he stood up, square on, and gave him one in the chest, straight on. Uh, It's not a, I don't know, it's not a preferred shot. The straight-on shot, but I was confident in the rifle. I'd already shot it, and it, you know, was accurate. So it uh, it was refreshing to see uh, the bullet go where it wants to go. Dempsey said, "Sometimes at the end of the season, I often wonder whether my gun is out of sight because the clients miss so much. But a lot of his clients don't shoot very often. I think us Australians are are blessed with our all-round, all-year-round shooting opportunities. Uh, so." Uh, yeah, that was a Blesbok down and that sort of took most of the day to, to find that and then get that done. But uh, we were playing around with the drone also and that was one of the other reasons I went was to get some more footage and stock footage. And we parked up the vehicle and we were droning over the top and then some more Blesbok were running around and we were chasing them with the drone and just, you know, having some fun. And sort of, we were, you know, there's three of us standing on the back of the ute, 200 metres behind us to my left. We hear this, and we all jacked our necks around, and there's a zebra stallion, 200-odd 200 metres, 220, staring at us. And Dempsey said, do you want to shoot a zebra? And I didn't say a word. I just cocked the gun, and that was it. We are on. So we jumped off the vehicle, and this thing then bolted, obviously, because it worked out what we were. It was curious at first, but. Again, he was running. It's a real peak season this May time for breeding season. So he was uh, all jacked up and looking for girls. And that's why he came to us. They would never normally come curiously. But uh, it's uh, just, I don't know what the word is, but it, when you picture Africa, you sort of, one of the animals you picture is a, a zebra. It's very iconic. And to see one just flogging at full pace. And you know, side on through the thick stuff, and then every now and then you just get this little flash of black and white, and then a flash of black and white. And I'm, at some point there, I didn't actually think I was going to get a shot. I uh, I sort of resigned to the fact that he was just going to disappear. But I, I sort of I've grown up riding horses, and you can sort of read when they're they're very similar in confirmation. You can read when they're slowing down and about to stop. And I said to the boys, "Oh, he's about to stop." And anyway, he was slowing, but they were sort of started making some noises to try and get him to stop and look back. And I, I don't know why I did it. And there's not really any relevance to it, but I went, (laughs) I don't know. I just pictured a horse. It's definitely not the noise Zebras make. And this thing stopped and looked back as if to say, what's that accent happening over there? And that was his uh, fatal mistake. So I shot him heavily quartering away and it, tucked in behind the shoulder and then came out the point on the other side and he went about 100 meters back on himself and then and then piled up but uh no he was a a very mature animal you know lacking very low in the teeth his molars were really starting to show some serious wear and the patterns on his back were just incredible a little bit like i don't know like a leopard kind of actual he had the stripes going up the side but then the spots running down the back and I think Dempsey said it in the past episode that zebra is one of the most common add-on species. People don't think they ever want to shoot one until you see one. But it's uh, what what I also found on him and I feel sorry for him was more ticks than I've ever seen in my life on his rectum. Ouch. Ouch. And some of them were like – they were like the size of a soft-shell crab. Like they were, there were some serious-looking crabs in there. And then we got him home and strung him up in the meat shack to start skinning, and his groin was the same under his belly and his flanks were the same. I just, you know, we as humans were pretty soft sometimes. You get one tick and you sort of – or, if, you know, a mosquito bites us, and these guys are just living infested. With that, but uh, sort of goes to show the the nature of life in Africa is not easy. But uh, to survive out there is tough. So that was uh, that was pretty interesting. Very thin skinned animal. So I stood there with Alfred the Skinner and sort of gave him a hand on the caping out of that. That uh, it's the only one I'm actually going to get mounted. The other ones are going to come back as flat skins and skulls. But uh, the zebra was too pretty, too pretty not to get mounted. So. And, uh, yeah, that was another day done. We spent a lot of time chasing warthogs in between, but they just never really presented. There was a couple of opportunities, but they were smaller ones or, or ones that were very fast, very fast. But uh, we got a flash of a, a kudu that afternoon on a separate property. There was a a big farming ranch, a low fence, so no, not, uh, not a fence farm. That would sort of make people's dreams come true it was one of those it was just a very no one got enough look at it to give it a measurement because these guys over there can measure things very quickly with their eyes but it was enough to make us want to keep chasing it and that was just a quick glance that afternoon on the way home and what we did then was we put some effort into it and I said to Dempsey I Again, I didn't really have a list or anything, but kudu is Mel's number one animal for Africa. It's Kyle's number one animal for Africa. It's Ben Unton's number one animal for Africa. It's a very common, common hunted animal, commonly hunted animal. But I said to him, "I don't want to shoot one before she does, unless it's that one. If you're going to make me shoot one, it's going to be a monster." So that ruined it for us for the rest of the trip because we were passing up kudu that people would shoot every day of the week. But this thing would have been pushing 60 inches and that's sort of like the 30-inch the Samba kind of mark or the 40 for goats. And everything else was around the 55, 53. There was some, you know, 56, 57 sort of stuff. But it's uh, it was just a a weird thing to be passing up these monsters hoping to it's not like you can just keep shooting them over there because you're going to pay once you shoot something, but it's...
1: It's, all, it's also if you shoot and wound, are you paying again?
0: Yeah, you don't pay again, you're in full. Uh, if you draw blood and they can't find it, you're in full because yeah, okay. it's dead. And the reason for that, we do do it here a little bit, not on the free range stuff because you don't own the animal, but on the any of the estate stuff here is the same situation. You draw blood, you pay and that is a thing over there however the trackers over there are incredible and they they can pick the wounded animal's footprints by the way it's carrying its feet like the weight the weight it puts into each track and to watch them work they they told me a story about the main tracker big john who he tracked a, a wounded i can't remember what it was a wounded eland or something at night in the dark and found it so you know just with head torches and uh yeah so you pay if you draw blood however you need to tip your tracker pretty well if you find something that you've wounded and and let go and it's not uncommon for clients to wound or miss or and and that was going back to my previous comment about we're lucky over here that we get to shoot regularly because a lot of the clients over there are americans and they don't Notice they don't shoot as regularly as we do, and that's reflected in their accuracy. And Australians are very good at moving things that are, sorry, shooting things that are moving or just about to move or walking. We just, we do it regularly with the kangaroos and rabbits, especially small game. So it uh, it definitely helps and helps over there. We chased a few fish around a, a pond as well. They were called a golden tilapia, which is probably the size of a. Uh, A big brim, like a, you know, 30 to 40 centimetre brim. And uh, they were just in this feeding, uh, what's it called, a water trough at this farm. And they're gold, like goldfish, but you think that that would make them easier to catch, but then you remember they've got to take the bait. It's not you seeing them. And they'd float right to the surface and just just fly straight past your bait. No interest. But uh, I actually didn't get one. The boys caught one and... We ended up catching all these little ones just on the hook. They were sort of that hungry, they didn't even need any bait. But uh, no, the, the zebra was a sort of exactly like Dempsey said, not an animal that I particularly went over there to harvest or to hunt, but man, I'm glad I did. And it's. Uh, Grace is definitely keen to see one come back. She's already got the little toy set up in the trophy room where it's going to hang on the wall. She got the little zebra sitting there. So then. Uh, the next day, Dev said, Do you want to shoot a crocodile? And that's uh, not something I'm ever going to knock back in life. He had mentioned it before. We'd spoken before I went over about a couple of animals that really interest me and the sort of style of hunting I'd, I'd like to do. That's trying to shoot things that are a little bit different than other people. And crocodile's definitely on that list. It's just not something we can ever shoot here, although we have plague proportions up there now and, you know, damaging animals and. In you know, a farm and people as well, but uh, unfortunately, the Australian government doesn't see that as a viable option, and I can understand why. But also understand the benefits in it and the costs that that could be rede- re- redeemed or reaped from from shooting them. But I I'd, I I'd, I'd never looked into crocodile hunting. I'd never thought about how you actually shoot one and where you would shoot. Although, like. I, The only thought I had was I was shooting in the water or is it on the land? And then there's a little book over there called The Perfect Shot and I'd seen it on my previous trip and then they had one on the coffee table at the lodge and it goes through each species in Africa and then it's got them you know, broadside, quartering on, face on usually like live animal photos and then it's got superimposed in their vitals and their neck and things and then it tells you gives you a description on, you know, where you, where they would see the perfect shot. And there's a bit of contention with some of the animals. But the African animals carry their vitals in a little bit different spot than us, than our animals here. They're usually a little bit further forward. And then, you know, the heart's very far at the front of the chest. And then you've also got the, you know, giraffe and things, which is a lot higher up in the chest. Um so, it's nice to know each different species. Now, we spoke about the crocodile and all the planning we did was based around this thing being on land and we drove an hour and a half, again, to a different property. Uh, so, what they do is they actually, they purchase the crocodiles as tiny little ones and then release them at some point in the farm and then they just filter their way out. And uh, you much about age of crocodiles and growth rates in your reptile history?
1: Yeah. It's super absolutely. slow? uh yes, but it depends on food, food. availability and heat, and that so the hotter it is, the metabolism works quicker. There's a million different things to it, but
0: not they're not from a fast a hatchling,
1: growing. No, from a hatchling to like a, an eight meter croc is a bloody long time. Like it's a, a human lifetime.
0: Yeah, right. So this was um, the sort of I'm sort of fast forwarding a bit. I'll get back to its age after I tell you about the shooting of it, but uh, it. Um, so they release them as little ones, and then obviously some survive, some some don't, and, you know, they're not available for hunting and harvesting until they sort of reach, I'm going to say sexual maturity, but plus three metres basically. Um, what's that, 12 foot or roughly 11.5 foot or so. Um, <clears throat> so that's, you know, anything bigger than that's considered a, a large trophy. Again, you're getting into that 30-inch Samba sort of comparison. But so this property had had several dams with crocodiles all through it, and it's a it's a game farm as well. But you can't fence a crocodile in. It's a sort of stream system that runs into these pools, and they when we got there they said, oh, um someone's been out on a game drive this morning with clients, and they saw one good one in this area, and it was on the bank. So we're like, oh, okay, sweet. So we drove to within you know eight hundred meters or so of the. The water system and then we closed the doors quietly and hop out and get ready and then we moved in there and then there was uh, one two three four five six of us there five of us there and we worked our way stalking around this dam section of the creek and couldn't see it didn't find it non-existent okay bit of a bummer a bit of a letdown and sort of not that i sort of thought it would just happen straight away but i wasn't Sure, but the other thing was, I wasn't prepared to shoot one in the water. We hadn't covered that in our 101 crocodile hunting earlier that morning at breakfast, so we have just waited. We sat up on the bank, laying down and glassing the water basically. And it was probably, I want to say, 300 meters long ish and maybe 100 meters wide with heavy reeds and things. And I mean, it could have popped out in a spot that we wouldn't have seen. But after about half an hour, um, I think it was Dempsey actually caught caught movement, like caught some ripples or something. And what had happened was two geese, which technically weren't geese, and I can't remember their name, but they landed. And then it was ten minutes. So he noted that they landed, and I didn't take much. He told us about it and said it. I didn't take much notice. And then about ten minutes later, the croc popped up thirty meters from them, and that was what he was stalking in on. And when I say pop up, you know what they do. It's just that eyes and horn thing. You get about, I don't know, six or eight inches long of, and then however many inches wide. And so it's not much of their bodies above water, just enough for them to see. And that's all he spotted. So we ended up moving back around to that end of the property or that end of the, the dam or that end of the, the bank, I suppose. And it was a really good stalk. Like, so they're a bit like Angus was saying, they're highly wired on vibration because they it knew that those birds landed there and were, you know, playing around and sort of I'm assuming they're sensing vibration better than you and I can. So we were conscious of that and moving in very slowly and creeping up over the bank. And we ended up about 50 meters from it. And I had an amazingly comfortable rest. I was lying on some prickles that were digging into my chest and I had. Spurs in my legs, and it was terrible, but I actually put the bino harness down on the ground and then sat the rifle just on the top of that, so it got me just a bit up off the ground. And what I presented with was a a back-of-the-head shot sort of quartering away with only this inch-and-a-half or so of flesh outside the water, and I could see where I was supposed to hit. They had explained it to me, and I felt extremely comfortable with this 308, I knew it was accurate and it was all on film. It was, they were set up there and they sort of snuck up behind us and Rurak our cameraman, had it all rolling and he said, no, good to go. And I said, all right, three, two, I was about to say one, and Dempsey said, what are you doing? I said, I'm counting down. I'm letting you know when I'm about to shoot. He goes, just shoot it. <sighs> anyway, I shot it and water erupted like the water jetted up. Two or three meters in the air, the crocodile come charging up out of the water and splash down and we had a young um they called him an appy, which is short for apprentice, but apprentice PH sitting next to me. Um, Olivanda. And he said, Good shot. And Dempsey very quickly said, Not good shot, Ollie. And my heart sunk. I was like, what? Like and he's like, Not good. He said, They don't react like that. It should be dead. It should not be moving. And we reviewed the footage and I actually hit a little bit low and I hit the water just short of him. And my heart was sinking because like you just said, you draw blood, you wound an animal, you pay. So I I don't know. My my emotions hit rock bottom. I was not not crying, but, man, I was like not a happy person to be around for a little bit. And, and they didn't help. Like I said to him, don't don't be pretty with me. Just tell me straight, what do you think? And he said, 50-50. You've either hit it low in the neck and it's gone through like throat and things and it's going to go down to the bottom of the dam and it's going to die and we're not going to see it for three days until it floats. And then one of the other crocodiles might come in and eat it anyway sort of thing. You might never get any of it. Right. That's sort of what I was dealing with. So then we dispersed along again, all the way around. We split up, and I was just so low. I I don't I get happy emotions from hunting. I don't often get sad and personally disappointed in myself. Emotions, and we watched the footage back over and back over, and it was just terrible. It was worse. And I mean, all I missed by an inch, but what it created was a massive problem. It's not if you miss by an inch on a deer, you're still hitting it and still quite often killing it. So I was at the bottom of my bottoms, and then I reckon it was a good 45 minutes later, half an hour to 45 minutes, it popped up on the side, well, not to the side of the center, let's say that. And that sort of gave us a bit of hope, at least that it wasn't dying at the bottom. It was possibly wounded still but alive. And then it it came up for a little bit and went back down. And again, that sort of suggested to them that it was injured and it wasn't being able to hold its breath as long as it should have. So it was coming up to have a quick breath and then head back down. And then it popped up again, 50 meters or so to the left, very close to the bank. I actually think it had its feet on the ground and just, just holding its horn and eyes and nose above the ground. And this was a full broadside shot and I was set up, ready to go. And it didn't seem to be in a hurry. It was quite, I'm going to say relaxed, I suppose, but it felt like that and it was just sitting there and I was just working on my breathing, which, is, again, it's not something I normally have to do. But, man, I had, I don't know what the buck fever, what's a male crocodile called versus a female?
1: Oh, I couldn't tell.
0: No, don't know either. But we'll call it buck fever, but croc fever. And it's the worst I've experienced in a long time now for the second shot because I'd already bummed the first shot. I was nervous. My heart was shaking. My hands were sweaty. And I literally, like, you've got a 50-cent coin is the brain on the side of a crocodile. You're basically aiming for the ear. So it was the description was halfway between the eye and the horn. There's like a drop-down smiley sort of black line, and you want to be in the center of that. (sighs) Okay, small target. So squeeze the trigger. It's not very loud because it's got a suppressor on it. And this thing just didn't move. Just what happened was the the shot went perfectly in there, in the side of the skull, tiny little entrance hole, but the bullet actually exploded the skull cap open and bits of skull were raining down on the rest of the dam, like 30 and 40 metres away. You catch it in the edge of the footage and you could just see the ripples coming from the middle of the dam where stuff was raining down and and it just laid where it was. It, uh, it did move slightly, but more of a nerve thing. And obviously, a quick little sigh of relief, but then Dempsey said, go and grab it before it, because one kick of the tail and it would have just floated down into the bottom again. So go and get it. So he was talking to Olivander the the appy, and there's some funny footage and it'll come out eventually when Rue gets it cut for me, but... There's a video of Ollie, Ollie and I are built very similar, quite round, and there's the two of us running together, which is unusual, along the bank of this river diving through thick, uh, like the amount of – I was still pulling thorns out of my hand the week after I came home just because we were both trying to get there as quick as we could to try and stop this thing. So, we, yeah. Uh, anyway, we both grabbed it pretty much the same time. Ollie beat me there. He went higher on the bank and I went lower and I got choked out by thistles. but. That's my excuse anyway. And we grabbed it and grabbed the tail and sort of dragged it up to shore and it wasn't moving. But that's the most emotional hunt I think I've ever had, in memory anyway. My first one, my first deer was pretty emotional, I suppose, but I didn't really know anything to compare it to. But that was very, very emotional. And, again, not an animal I particularly, you know, grew up wanting to hunt or anything, but it was a – it's just a dinosaur of an animal. I've closed. It ended up going 3.71, and they sort of said it was, you know, possibly 15 to, I don't know. Some said 15 to 18, but I don't really, again, like you said, food and temperature has a lot of variance in those things, variation. And that was the hardest part then was, so Ollie actually dragged it through the water, possibly still other crocs in there, not that we'd seen, but through the water across to the other side that's off Soft Ollie, and you know, got it up on the bank and that's where we got the photos and things. And I said to the guys, I want to put my head in its mouth. And they're like, no, we don't do that photo. I said, I wanted to do that photo. Anyway, so I did it and they were very reserved about it. And we had a stick in its mouth and whatnot. I didn't think too much of it, but then we'd been there for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes and did some video and photos and things. And then it moved. Its arm moved and then its tail moved and it was definitely dead. But just the the twitching like most animals have, whether it's a reptile specific thing. I know snakes can still, you know, move after several hours of being cut their head off and things. But, you know, this thing, we took it back to the house and I'm going to say five hours after it was shot, started skinning it and i was cutting down its tail and its tail was pushing us out of the way not twitching it was swinging side to side just muscle twitch i've never seen anything like that that long after being killed and they said yeah it's not uncommon to throw it in the cool room and it's still twitching after it so i've done a lot of skinning in my time i've never done any reptile stuff So, I went uh, one for one with Alfred the Skinner. We went 50-50 on this thing and uh, he whispered in my ear, like the guides were, they were like, why are you helping? Just let them do it. I said, no, this is super interesting. So, they went and had lunch and I stayed, but he whispered in my ear at some time. He said, Dodge, no one ever helps me. I was like, oh, Alfred, that's nice. But I wasn't doing it for him. I was doing it for my (laughs) benefit, but uh just to say, I've done it out of interest' sake. They don't actually. You can't skin the head. The uh, the scales don't separate enough. They're so tight onto the skull. You can boil them and they'll fall off, but you can't skin them and then sort of reuse them. If they usually leave them on there and then just sort of dry the skull out. So if you have a, a crocodile mount, that's its actual head. Yeah. Okay. In, in comparison to like a lion or something, where they use a fake head. And you get the skull as a separate trophy, whereas a crocodile it stays in, so I'm unsure what I'm gonna do with that one yet if uh, it's extremely expensive for a full body mount, but I've got a at the moment it's just a flat skin with the head in it, and uh it can stay that way until I win the lotto I think it's um yeah an impressive animal um i'm gonna the rhino was an interesting highlight, but I think um. From a hunting point of view, the the crocodile was probably my highlight. That
1: shocks me, to be honest, because from having hunted them in the sense of just trying to find them and see them, I would never – they just sit there. For me, when you said you shot it and it was a hunt and a stalk, I was sort of sitting there and and taking my time back in the NT when we did similar. But, you know, like you can drive the boat down and see them on the the side and they just – depending on the size – the big fellas don't care because they're the big apex predator. Might be different in Africa because, like, I don't know and haven't been there. But here in Australia, the big ones, they don't care. Like, you know, you see the footage of them coming up to boats and just nudging boats or coming up. There was a great bit of um, footage on Facebook the other day. Uh, probably, yeah, it was only a small fella. He's probably six foot, maybe seven. And he um, he comes up beside the boat and they're filming it. And he's just looking at him out of the side of his eyes. And the next minute he just hits his tail and comes up out of the water into the boat. And, yeah, so when you told me you shot the crocodile, I literally sat there and went, that would have been real easy, Like in the sense that they don't move and they sit on the bank generally or even if they're on the thing, unless they're stalking prey, like you said, with the geese things, that then then they're under and submerged. But realistically, especially if they're – you know i'd say morning and night they're probably out trying to get some sun cuz that's what they need for energy um midday probably depending how hot it gets over there again i don't know but that's yeah it was an interesting one that was so I was really surprised to hear that that was your the one that hit you the most so
0: i think and uh, well these these guys never seen a boat like they don't he'd never been hunted or I think that – so when people picture Africa, you know, I've been to Kruger National Park, went over there the first time. And those animals, like you can go and see the big five in one drive. You know, you'll see a leopard sitting under a tree. That just never happens in reality. And I think that animals get desensitized to vehicles and things. I actually think that this one moved off the bank when he heard us park up 800 meters away. And I think that's – you know, they're not – I know I, I've been up, I, I'm not sure where you went when you're in NT. I've done the whole, what's it called? The croc jumping, feeding, tour-y type type type, uh, kakadoo type stuff. And, I mean, they, they get used to being fed. They get used to humans and, and they are a slightly, I'm I'm not saying it's a fair comparison, but, um, I mean, this thing was alert aware. he was the boss of his dominion and we were intruders and we were, like I said, the vibrations set him off enough to hide, and then, yeah, it was. I think if I shot him the first time and it happened, it wouldn't have been my highlight. I think what made it memorable and hard hitting for me was that I stuffed it up and had to redeem myself with a better shot. Um, I, I can, I, I get what you're saying, and I had no concept of. I actually hadn't even considered that cat that uh, Kakadu trip when I went over there. And, you know, like you said, you see these big six-meter-plus crocs just cruising the surface, like you said, in a more like a cocky kind of version. They, they've got no predators. They sort of – boats don't scare them. No, they're the boss. And Nothing scares them. They're the them the boss. But, um, yeah, it was uh, – I don't know. It's just on that sort of side topic list of animals that aren't very commonly hunted for other people. Uh, and I also, you know, like I said, the fact that you can't hunt one here I mean, I can't hunt. No, you can kudu, yeah. kudu here either, but uh, it's just, yeah, I, I wanted to test it out and it's a good way. I mean, I, I like to tell people that, you know, if you, you want to go on a hunt that I've done it or I've been there and it's a bit hard to explain unless you've done it. So I think the crocodile was a, a cool one to go on. The other thing is it's not very common over there to be hunted, even though it is a thing. We threw it on the back of the vehicle. We had an hour and a half drive home, and on the way home, uh, we we had some spectacular biltong while we were over there. And we were Googling, we had to go through a town, so they were Googling the best butcher in town for the biltong, where they hadn't been there before. And I can hands—I even kept their business card. I can hands down say it was the best biltong I had while I was over there. But when we were parked, we were just literally parked in the car park, like outside Norell and Town Centre, and with a crocodile in the back of the tray, and there was a build-up by the time we come out of the, the butcher, of locals, crocodilia, crocodilia. They're all just saying, and all the kids were lining up. The school bus had just dropped off, and it was uh, it was pretty cool to see. The other thing that was cool to see was three kids lined up on the back of a Ute and a baby seat strapped onto the tray, and so that's like they were just carrying their kids to and from school, external to the internal of the vehicle, which is yeah. I just I actually. I thought about you because it was like three seats really close together. I thought about your back seat with the twins. Lack Yeah, back Yeah, lack of. And uh, yeah, I, snapped a, I snapped a photo of that. But it was, um, yeah, to see their faces and interest. Uh, you know, he shot a crocodile. Someone shot a crocodile. It was interesting to them. And uh, you wouldn't have that interest here. You'd be straight on a current affair. If uh, Even if you had a deer on the back of your tray at Macca's, you'd be... You know, people would be taking photos for different reasons, but uh, no, that was, like I said, an unsuspecting highlight of of that section of the trip. The the skinning of it too, being hands on with that was real interesting. We ate it. We had um, what were they? Nuggets like uh, crocodile nuggets. Have you ever eaten it at any restaurants here? Yeah, I
1: loved. I oh, I you can buy it from. Um, so every time I go to the NT, I do get it. Um, it's Oops. one of my favourite meats to eat. So there is one place here in Sydney that imports it, but it's pretty hard to get. It's a bit. Right. Uh, we should be a bit more um, available because it's so nice. It's such a good meat.
0: Well, it, I'd heard that, and admit I'd say my bowl was fifty-fifty. I had it was. They don't let you eat the fat because they eat because they are a predator and they eat decaying food and things like that. They've been told that, not being told, I suppose, but. They've learned over the years that the fat holds the deposits of those. You know, if there's any problems with the animal in as far as sickness, it's generally held in the fat. So, the main meat we were consuming was tail meat, sort of the back end of the fillet, and then all the way down the tail. So you pull off. There was a top layer that was quite fatty and it looked really yummy, but that's where they were saying, "Oh, you know, it was more like Scotch fillet meat, where it was meat mixed with fat." And they were like, no, you kind of more need the the sirloin stuff, which is more just straight meat. And so that's what we took out. And we had that that night for dinner. And like I said, 50-50, some parts were super tender and just fall apart like flaky fish. Another part was more like a chicken breasty sort of texture. Not terrible, but uh, flavor was delicious. Uh, we actually ate, well, We just they call it all venison, but we ate venison the whole time we were there. Uh, zebra fillet steak. So, yeah, I'm um, tenderloin. I fillet was the softest piece of meat I tried over there. Kudu was really nice. Uh, Eland was nice. We had hippo one night, just for something different. That was a little bit chewy, and I could say I've eaten it, but it kind of just tasted like a bad veal schnitzel. And uh, yeah, the food was impressive, but the hunting obviously was more impressive. The just the extra little wildlife, the little leopard tortoise. We found a few of those crossing the road. They were pretty cool. Uh, what else? The guinea fowl. So many guinea fowl, especially on the farming, on the crops. A little bit different to our guinea fowl, but uh, I don't know. It was just a uh, like, like even just you said. Then you, you it's hard to talk about it because you haven't been there, and I, it just even if you're just over there for a holiday. It's not the real Africa. It's kind of like when tourists come to Sydney. They sort of see – they don't see your and my life. They see what, you know, TV portrays of of Sydney and Australia, and it's the same with Africa. So I, uh, I had a great trip. It was um, – yeah, it's no secret that I'll be back. I definitely uh, can't wait to go. The kids and the wife nearly went on this trip because the flights were so cheap. It was just uh, none of them have – Passports because we just haven't been overseas with the kids yet, so to get them at short notice because the dates got brought forward and things cost more than the flights would have, and it wasn't worthwhile so it's uh and they are too young to fully experience it grace is on the on the cusp of starting to enjoy it, but even then she wouldn't i think it's more of a seven to ten year old kid kind of trip um i and not once did I ever feel uncomfortable or unsafe I know that's a a common thought with Africa. Uh, The airport itself, you just get picked straight up from the the front when you come out of the doors, unless you sit at the police desk like I did. But uh, you get picked up there and whisked out of town and, yeah, not once did I ever feel uncomfortable. Johannesburg itself is not a beautiful part of town, but we have, you know, there's places in Cameltown you don't go out past dark. I say that about, you know, every country's got these places. Over there it's just slightly bigger. But uh, no, the staff are great and extremely hospitable. Hospitable? Is that the right word or is that a bad word? (laughs) No, anyway, the the staff are great and I can – like those guys said on the Meat Eater podcast, if we don't create value in hunting these animals, there'll be no value in them and all the land that is now there with these animals in it will disappear and return to farming. So, um, yeah, it's hard to experience from the other side of the ocean. So – Definitely recommend and uh if anyone's interested in going over and, and whatnot and wants some advice or is going over and needs some advice, just reach out and say hello. But that's um I can't wait to go back next year and standing invitation, Matt, if you ever do want to come over, it's um obviously just a fun place to go, but it can be as affordable or as expensive as you need it to be. Nothing's free over there, but there's also lots of little animals you can get done for a little price versus going to New Zealand and you pay, you know five or six grand for one animal, you can go over there and pay that and, and shoot five or six animals. So it's, um, yeah, it's a good, fun place to be. All
1: right, guys. Well, I hope you've enjoyed Dodge Recounting Africa and uh, learned a little bit about what goes on over there. And um, next, uh, next couple of episodes, I think we'll get back into the Australian stuff. So, all right, I'll uh, catch you next time. Bye for now. If you have a question for the team, shoot us an email. Our email address is the endless pursuit podcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, jump on our social media, Facebook and Twitter. You can find us by using the at hunting journeys and Instagram. Find us on endless underscore pursuit underscore podcast. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.